If you've got a Bible on you, open up to Philippians chapter 1. I want to take it from halfway through verse 18. But Paul says this. Yes, and I will rejoice. Yes, and I will be happy. Yes, and I will find joy in God. Remember the backdrop that he is in prison. That he is in a place of real uncertainty about whether death awaits him in the near future. And so this needs to ring out as an incredible note of joy against that background. Or else it just fades away into um, just the words wash over you. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it's my eager expectation and hope that I'll not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. We've been trying to wrestle with this letter and with the extraordinary element of joy that runs through it. And I've been trying to open up for you some of the reasons why Paul is happy. I mean, this first chapter just rings out again and again with his excitement and joy against all the odds. And the question is how he can be happy in such a a difficult situation. And one of the things that we came to last week was to explore the fact that often... It is our perspective on our situation rather than our circumstances that determine whether we have joy or not. That a paraplegic, as we as illustrating for you last week, can experience more joy in day-to-day life than a lottery winner, even though the circumstances are vastly different. And that the, distinf- the, the, the distinction but, or difference between them is down to their difference of perspective on the situation. But I know that some of you think, well, isn't this just the old sort of optimist versus pessimist thing? Doesn't it just come down to that natural bent of mind, those natural dispositions that some of us are, by nature, kind of the the glass half full people, and some of us are glass half empty. So you look at Paul and you think, there he is, languishing in a prison, and he's just an optimist. That's just who he is by nature, and therefore that explains the joy that he has in his heart. You think, well, I'm wired differently. It's okay for me to be miserable. It's okay for me to sit in self-pity and uh, sit in this puddle for a while because I feel really sad about the way I feel right now. And I want you to understand that I don't believe that this has anything to do with natural disposition. I think that to say that would be to restrict the joy which the Bible promises only to a segment of the population. People who who are lucky enough to feel happy when they wake up in the morning. Because that's how they are by nature. And it also minimizes the, the glory of Jesus Christ and what Jesus had done in this man's life. 
I don't think he had a naturally sunny disposition. This was Paul the fanatic, Paul who was essentially a murderer. They're not generally known for their happiness about life, men like this. He was, he was an intense, intense man. But he discovered happiness. I think the essential reason, and the thing which is going to keep hitting us from side left and side right and every single side as we go through this letter, is the fact that this is a man who is devoted to Jesus Christ in a totally obsessive, life-altering way. You can't explain his joy without understanding that it's rooted on his passion for Jesus, which means that you can put him in every kind of situation in life, and his joy is untouchable because Jesus is always his. If it was something about his, that he found joy in which you could take away from him, his health or his comforts, then you could take the joy away. But his joy is untouchable because Christ is his regardless. And so he looks at his whole situation through a different lens. This is what we've been trying to open up, especially last week. He said in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. My imprisonment has been a wonderful thing, he says, because it's led to the glory of Jesus Christ in the earth. So he is essentially a happy man. That's how it starts in the section we read today. Yes, he says, and I will rejoice. And I just want to clear something up before we really dig into what he's saying here. A lot of people think that when you read the word rejoice in the Bible, or blessed, or this kind of language, that we're talking about some category of religious joy that's different from happiness that you can have in day-to-day life. And so I've actually taught this, and a lot of Christians, this is the way a lot of Christians think, that there's this thing that we know of as happiness, which we don't really live for that or necessarily think that we're going to experience that in day-to-day life. What we have as Christians is joy. And so this is why we, we use this kind of religious language, words that actually aren't necessarily the best words in English to capture what is going on in Paul's mind. We talk about you know, we put it on Facebook, just feeling blessed right now. And people like, who, who aren't Christians look at that and think, I have no idea what that means. And rightly so, because I don't know what that means either. If we just used the language of day-to-day life, it would make more sense if we just said feeling happy. Because that's essentially what these words mean. But for some reason, they've taken on this kind of supercilious religious tone that for Paul to rejoice is really, he's quite grim, he's quite stoical, but he's rejoicing. You just wouldn't know it if you looked at his face. <laughs> and of course, that makes absolutely no sense. There's no such thing as joy without happiness or happiness without joy. They, they are one and the same, aren't they? And so also to be blessed when Jesus talks about the promises of being in his family and talks about the blessings that come to those who are in the kingdom, he means happiness, which is a wonderful promise, isn't it? To understand and to receive. What is joy without happiness? In fact, no one made that distinction, by the way, until um, fairly recently in Christian history. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. Most of the authors through Christian history didn't make it. It's a really new way of thinking that there's this thing called joy and this thing called happiness, and they don't cross or coincide. Get it in your head, Paul's happy. Yes, and I will be happy. That's how we should understand it. Then we want to ask this question. I think you and I agree that happiness is what Most of us, the core, in fact, I'd say arguably all of us are driving towards, striving for in day-to-day life. Every decision you make can be understood in terms of what will make you happy. That's why we make decisions. Why is he happy? What's the source of his happiness? And it comes down to this verse right in the middle. 
verse 21, which I think is the beating heart of this man. I don't think you can understand him. You can't understand the psychology of this man without getting to grips with what he says here. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the answer. And so he kind of sets up this bizarre hypothetical that if I were to choose, what would I choose? Would I choose death or would I choose life right now? It's a hypothetical for Paul because he knows that he's not actually in control of this choice. It's God's choice alone. But it's a kind of thought experiment. He wants to lay bare before his readers and before us an insight into his own mind that he is genuinely torn. He is genuinely struggling to know what's the right, the best thing that he could experience right now. Immediate death, even though he's in his prime, even though he's healthy, even though he's enjoying um, fruitful ministry when he gets out of prison, or the potential for release and for future work for Jesus. For me, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, we're never really going to face this choice, are we? Most of our choices are not much more difficult than whether we choose fish food or cookie dough from the freezer at Tesco, is it? We just, we have so many good options in front of us. But Paul is so bizarre and so captivating to begin to explore what is it that gripped this man so much that he could say to live as Christ and to die as gain. This kind of win-win way of thinking. What does it mean for us? What does it mean to say to live as Christ? Because I think this is the key to everything that's going on in this letter. Hear this and then we can all go home. And... No, not really. <laughs> I think many of us feel that we fall short of this, don't we? Could you look me in the eye and say, yeah, for me to live as Christ. I know without hesitation or a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is everything to me. And that all of my decisions, all of my life revolves around living for the glory of Jesus. Living for delight and his pleasure and relationship with him. For me to live is Christ. I know I fall short of this. I think back on, even as recently as this past week, decisions I make. Ways that I spend my time that reveal that this isn't 100% true of me. And I think Paul knows that he's a little bit unique in this. I think he knows it because of how he, he ends this section where he says that he's convinced that he'll remain. In other words, that he'll stay alive and continue and for your progress and join the faith. Paul knows he's got something special. He knows that his presence makes a difference in other people's lives. He knows that his obsession with Jesus Christ is unusual in his singular focus. Which is why when he goes into a church people suddenly find that their spiritual temperature is rising, that all of their hearts are a little bit more dedicated towards Jesus, that they're a little bit more sacrificial, that they suddenly realize the true perspective on life, what really matters. And when Paul's away, their progress perhaps slows a little. Their joy perhaps diminishes a little. He has something special, but praise God we have his letter because we get to imitate him. We get to step into his mind and understand what motivated this man, what drove him. And hopefully by God's grace, 
be transformed to be a little bit more like Paul, who is striving to be like Jesus, his master. I want to show you a few things that come out from this section we read that are true of the person who can say to live as Christ. And here's the first. That you want to be identified with Jesus no matter what it costs you. To say to live as Christ is to say that you want to be identified with him in all and any circumstances. And that's what comes out at the beginning when he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And at that point you're thinking he means salvation, freedom from prison. And he, it, he doesn't mean that here. Because he says, as it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For Paul, what he's saying here is that deliverance or salvation in this situation is not backing down from his desire and willingness to own Jesus Christ, to profess the name of Jesus, even if it costs him everything. To be saved in that situation is not to buckle, not to become a coward. Not to hide what he had and what he knew about Jesus. By your prayers, by the power of the Spirit, I will not be ashamed. That's what he says. Now I know that it's obvious that real love for a person ought to be shown by a willingness to be identified with them. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, but the, um, I really like the six-hour box set of Pride and Prejudice that the BBC made in the 1990s. It's the only time you're ever going to hear me say that. We're going to edit it from the recording later. But you know that the central element of that story revolves around the tension between a growing love in Mr. Darcy's heart towards Elizabeth Bennet, but the challenge of not wanting to be so identified with her in marriage because she's a woman of a lower social status. I know we don't necessarily have the same Precisely the same dilemmas in modern society. They may exist a little bit, but it's not always the same thing. It may be other things that, that control who you want to be identified with by marriage, whether it's whether your friends think they're good-looking or all these kinds of things. The other things control us. But the point is that for Mr. Darcy, at some point, love has to conquer that reticence to, be, to have her by his side. And initially, he's still ambiguous about this because he proposes to her the first time. And while he tells, he tells her that it's against his own better judgment that he loves her, and he, as he talks to her, she is, the overwhelming sense she gets is that he doesn't really want to marry her, but he just has to get this love off his chest or else he'll explode. And so she answers him with this, this classic line where she says, you choose to tell me that you liked me against your will, against your reason, and even against your character. And so she retreats into her pride. I'm no charity case. And they withdraw from each other until later when they do get married. Sorry, I spoiled it for you. <laughs> Real love is, is demonstrated by a willingness to be identified with someone. If I... You know, if I was to say to my wife when we walk down the street, please, sweetheart, I love you, but would you walk 10 meters behind me? <laughs> or when we're at church, would you please sit at the back? I noticed that Danny was at the front, Jocelyn was halfway back <laughs> earlier. Please don't read into that. <laughs> Obviously, in, in our society, you know, one of the 
clearest ways you see that people really love each other is through these the sickening public displays of affection. When there is no shame, no desire to hide the love between the couple as they put it on display for all the world to see. Now, I don't think we should go that far. But there is, at the essence of real love, there is a willingness to say, this, is, this person is mine and I am theirs and they are by my side and I want all the world to see that. Surely that's part of the reason why you share a name, share a bank account, share a house, share everything. You're saying, I want to be, my love binds me to this person. Now, I think in a real sense, a true love for Jesus has to have that public element. It has to have that kind of public display of affection. And so let me ask you a simple question. Do, do people know that you're, you, you're a Christian? Your colleagues, your family, do people around you know that you stand for Jesus? Or do your words and perhaps even your lifestyle deny that? And not only would they know you're a Christian, we know that there's Christians and there's Christians, right? There's all kinds of people who say they're Christians, but they would never be caught dead showing any emotion about their faith. But do people know that you love Jesus? Is it obvious to people that Jesus is the Lord of your life? I think this is what Paul is showing when he says, for me to live is Christ, and by your prayers and by the power of the Spirit, I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm going to honor him in my body, whether by life or by death. I don't think you can understand his devotion to Jesus to live as Christ apart from his willingness to put it on display for all the world to see. How, how publicly do you choose to wear your faith? You know, when you, you introduce yourself to someone at a party or a networking event, do you say, you know, hi, I'm, I'm Jeremy and I'm a Christian? Or do you say, I'm, I'm Jeremy and I work for Third Space Learning? Now, you know Jeremy says he's a Christian. And the rest of you are thinking, I'm not Jeremy. (laughs) But why wouldn't we choose to identify as that? Surely being a Christian is more fundamental to your identity and who you are as a person than anything else about you. Certainly your profession. I don't want to downgrade the importance of what we do for a living, but it is not as fundamental to who you are as a person. You can take away your profession and you're still you. You cannot take away your faith and you remain you. Why is it that we, we hide this? Now, this matters a huge amount to Jesus. Remember how he said that we shouldn't take a light and put it under a bowl, but rather on a hill, on a lampstand, so it gives light to the whole house. Jesus spoke intense and searching words about this kind of thing. For example, in Mark 8, he says, Whoever is ashamed, remember it's the same word that Paul's just used, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think he's saying something like that when a person cannot ultimately profess me in any context, then perhaps they don't really know me. And yet Jesus doesn't want you to feel condemned. You remember how tenderly after Peter disowns Jesus while Jesus is on the cross and he says to the woman and to the girl at the, around the bonfire, you know, I don't know him. Three times. And after Jesus' resurrection, he, he goes to him and gently begins to restore him. 
he gently begins to show him that he's not committed the unforgivable sin by hiding his belief or his faith. And he keeps asking, he asks him three times in John 21, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And each time John gets to reaffirm, you know that I do, you know that I do. Master, you know I love you. If you've been a person who has not owned, owned Jesus publicly, Jesus might ask you that question even right now. Brother, sister, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Of course, in the next chapter of Peter's life, he is willing to be public about his faith. He's willing to stand up in front of thousands when the power of the Spirit comes upon him. Paul does not want to be ashamed of the gospel. It matters a huge amount to Jesus. And I know that this can be incredibly hard, especially when it's tested, right? When you're in a situation where you think it's embarrassing to profess faith in Christ. Or it could even hurt me or hurt my future. It might be easy for you when you come in to a situation like this where we gather together as a church and we sing songs. and You, you raise your hands, maybe sway those hips a little bit, saying your love never fades, never gives up. And you think, yes, I love you, Jesus. But is the love of God controlling you so much that when you go out there, he's everything? And what Paul writes to us here, there's a little bit of a warning and a bit of a promise, I think. There's a warning in the sense that, look how he puts it. He says, I'll not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, full courage, now as always. And here's what I want you to understand. The reason why Paul could be public about his faith when it would cost him everything was because he'd always been public about his faith from the earliest days. He didn't have to suddenly make a decision. Is it really worth it to me right now to profess Jesus? He says, with full courage now as always. I've always lived like Jesus is everything and I'll give up anything for him. And my warning to you, friends, is that You may not own Christ when it really costs you if you can't own him when it doesn't. But there's also this element of power and of promise that comes through because he says, I know through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ this will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation, God's help. The Lord has a special measure of the Holy Spirit's power that is available to people who want to profess Jesus in the most difficult of circumstances. Did you know that? Jesus promised the power of the Spirit for us in such situations. And when you read the book of Acts, one of the things you begin to realize is that the Holy Spirit gives special grace to people when they're being tested about whether they will profess Jesus' name publicly, whether when it costs them. In Acts 4, there's an example of this. When Peter and John have just healed a man, And they're dragged before the council. And really, a lot is at stake here because the council are the same men who put Jesus to death not many weeks earlier. So Peter and John are afraid. And what does it say? Or could be afraid, I should say. But what does it say? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. And he, he starts preaching to them. At the moment when he should be most afraid, the Holy Spirit rushes upon him and fills him with the power and grace to profess Jesus' name before the council. 
And the council deliver their verdict. They say, okay, we don't want you to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. They go back to the church, tell the church, listen, this is what they said, so let's pray. We're not allowed to preach Jesus' name anymore in Jerusalem, so let's pray. And what happens? They pray, and they don't ask for a reversal of that decision. They don't ask that the council would change their mind or that suffering would be spared upon them. Instead, this is what they ask. They ask that with full boldness they would continue to preach. And then it says in Acts 4, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. A lot of us think that the gift of the Holy Spirit is given just for us to enjoy fun meetings together as Christians. And I don't, I don't think that the Spirit wants to withhold from us when we gather and wants to bring the gifts of the Spirit on display. It's there in the New Testament and we should fully expect it. But do you know, I think the predominant emphasis in the New Testament of what the Holy Spirit is given for, the power of God is poured out upon us for, is for testimony. So you'll never really experience that power unless you're willing to step out To live is Christ, Paul says. My reputation doesn't matter. My safety doesn't matter. My promotion doesn't matter. My future doesn't matter. My safety does not matter. To live is Christ. Here's the second thing. To say to live is Christ means that you are even ready to die and to be with Jesus. It's right there in the middle. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire, his longing, he says, is to depart. It's a euphemism. He means to die. I, I actually would prefer to die and be with Christ, for that is far better. I think, in a sense, this is the ultimate test of whether a person really wants and loves Jesus. It's whether you want to be with him. I'm not saying that Christians should go through life with a morbid desire to die, because I don't think there's any morbidity about the way Paul speaks here. But the ultimate test of whether your life is Christ is whether there is some longing in your heart to be with him. You think about... How wrong it is when a husband says to his wife, I love you, but then he stays late in the office unnecessarily and doesn't come home to her, doesn't want to be with her, avoids being with the family at the weekends because he'd rather be by himself playing golf or whatever. The children gets home from work, says, I'm devoted to my children, but can't be bothered to spend time with them or play with them. Or a child, all of us are children to someone, doesn't want to be with parents, would rather spend time with with friends, and yet professes to love. You know, you can see how there's a massive contradiction, isn't there, between saying to someone, I love you, I just don't want to spend time with you. And in a sense, that goes to the heart of what I think is going on in Paul's heart here, that his love for Jesus so compelled him that he genuinely looked at death as a bonus as the exciting possibility. I know you might think, well, he's a slightly unusual man. For one thing, he'd had a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so anyone who's seen Christ 
it seems to follow, would be a little bit more captivated with him than those of us who have not seen him with our eyes. He tells elsewhere of his being caught up into the third heaven. He'd had experiences, in other words, of God and God's presence that had changed his life, captivated him with an obsession with Jesus and with heaven and with a desire to be with Jesus in heaven. So I can admit that, you know, I think Paul is a bit strange in that sense. He's had unusual experiences. He's had tastes of things. But at the same time, you know, we see even in the New Testament that it's not just people who've been caught up in this way and seen visions of Jesus who, who want to be with him. You remember Stephen, the first martyr. He'd had no visions of Jesus when he willingly was about to be martyred for him. In fact, it was only as he was dying that Christ appears to him. But his heart was so captivated with Christ and his desire for heaven that he fearlessly lays down his life there and then. Friend, I think that your view of death is probably the real measure of your heart's devotion to Jesus. Think about it in terms of faith, hope, and love, that great trio of what captures biblical Christianity and faith. Your view of death is the measure of your faith or of how much you trust Jesus. Are you afraid of death? Does death seem to you a kind of dark shadow? If you were to have a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, would you at that point crumble in fear and dread and anxiety? Maybe you will not know unless it, when, if and when that happens. But we know that our death is soon. I think it's hard to know, isn't it, whether you're ready for death unless it's around the corner, as Paul was. But if death is something you're afraid of, then it speaks to whether you really trust Jesus. Trust his promises. He can free you from that fear. Think about it in terms of your hope. Death is a measure of whether your hope is really set on heaven or not. Would you be angry if... Your life was cut short in your view. You didn't live the long or the full life that you'd hoped and expected. Would you feel angry with God? I remember when I was six years old, this is something that my dad had to wrestle with. He spent about six months in prison. Uh, not in prison. <laughs> wow. I signed a non-confidentiality as well. It's a non-disclosure agreement, that's the one. Now it's out. Now, he has no record, to my knowledge. He spent about six months in hospital. It began in intensive care, and he almost died. He almost died on a few occasions, and wasted away to about eight stone in weight, and looked like a, you know, a skeleton on, on legs. And... Um, I didn't fully understand it at the time, but one of the things that he had to wrestle with was, well, what if my life is cut short and I haven't done all the things I wanted to do? And it really speaks, doesn't it, to whether you think heaven is better or not. It really speaks into that question. Because for Paul, that's exactly what it meant. Heaven is better. Death is better. Obviously, you've got a problem if you don't really think that being with Jesus is better. And think about it in terms of love. It's a measure of your love for Jesus. 
how you feel about death. Here's how Matthew Henry put it. He put, death is a great loss to a carnal, which means fleshly, worldly man. For he loses all his comforts and all his hopes. In other words, somebody whose mind is, is not fixed on Christ, but is only fixed on this world, always thinks about death in terms of loss. But he says, but to a good Christian, it's gain. To Paul, it's gain. For me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Would you see death as loss or gain? Most of you are really young. Death's a long way away. Actually, now is the most important time to wrestle with this question. Because it alters the course of how you choose to live your life from here on. The fear of death is a controlling thing. It controls the decisions people make, the trajectories that they are set upon for the decades that lie ahead. How do you perceive life? What risks are you willing to take for Christ? How much safety do you need in life? Or is Jesus your safety net? I think it reveals more about your spirituality than any other question. Here's the last thing that comes across here. When Paul says that to live is Christ, it's partly about publicly owning Jesus, being unashamed. It's partly about having an anticipation that death is gain and heaven is better. But here's the last thing that comes out, that bleeds out, that's revealed in this man's head and his heart as he talks to us about what's going on as he does this thought experiment. It's this, that to live is Christ is to want to desire to work for Jesus with what time you have. Life is short. Time is short. And there is a compelling desire to use that time wisely in the here and now for Jesus Christ and for nothing else. I think it's hard to imagine any of us being as single-minded as Paul about this. Because look, when he's wrestling with this question, this hypothetical, what would I choose? What does he, how does he put it? He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And earlier he'd said, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So if you were to boil it down to the one thing that keeps Paul's heart on earth, his singular focus is the work that he's called to do. Now, it's bizarre, isn't it, when you think about it in those terms? Because I think if I was to put it before you, what would you feel about dying in the near future? Probably, when you put the the cost-benefit into the scales, some of the things that you're going to bring up as being what keep you here on earth are things like family, and your home, and your bucket list, the things, places you want to go, stuff you want to eat. You know, if you've, if you've lived your life and never yet eaten beef rundown, <laughs> or Assam laksa from Penang in Malaysia, these are some of the most delicious foods that this world has ever produced, and you're ready to die? Seriously? A lot of people, you know, if we think about what keeps you here on earth, it's the pleasures of life, the joys that await you, the possibility of a spouse and of children and maybe grandchildren and living to see your grandchildren married and maybe, if you're lucky enough, great-grandchildren and then giving them Werther's originals and living <laughs> until old and enjoying them. Paul doesn't mention any of that stuff. 
I think, you know, this man has a singular focus. For to me, to live is Christ because it means fruitful labor. Paul, why do you want to live? Oh, only one reason. I want to work for Jesus. Now, you might say to me, well, look, this man didn't have a home. He was always traveling. He didn't have a family, for as far as we can tell. Certainly no wife. So obviously, he's got none of the ties that keep us. So he, he, that's why he's single-minded about this. But I say to you, don't you realize that the reason he didn't have a home, the reason why he didn't have a wife and family, was because of the prior commitment to Jesus Christ. This was the underlying passion and motive that controls everything Paul does in life. It's not that he was just a sad, lonely little man who can only live for his work. Rather, he is someone who so has chosen to lay his life down for Christ that this is the controlling motive of his life. What controls your life? You must be able to answer that question. You have to be able to look inside and look in your heart and know what is it that is the controlling motive or desire in in what I do and what I'm living for. If you haven't asked and answered that question, then you don't understand yourself. The reason why I want to stress this is because I think, I I sometimes fear that John Piper got it right. I don't know if you know the story of um, back in the year 2000, uh, he spoke at the conference one day, there were 40,000, this was, I was reading a recent article about this, just recapturing this, it was 17 years ago now, obviously, but there were 40,000 college students who'd gone to hear him, uh, gone to the conference, and he happened to be the speaker, and some of them were like, well, who's this old man speaking? And then he let loose. And he, he preached to them that day the message which has come to be known in the book, Don't Waste Your Life. And he famously used an illustration that went like this. He picked up a Reader's Digest, probably in a doctor's office or something like that, and it told a story about Bob and Penny who, wanted to take, who had taken early retirement. He says they took early retirement from their jobs in, in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51, and now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, he told them. He said, there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing and look at my boat. That has lived with me. I read the book. I think it's one of the most life-changing books you could ever read. And you kind of smirk and you kind of laugh a little because you think of the ridiculousness of it when it's put in those words. A couple, early retirement to collect seashells. But the thing that makes me think is the question about whether, in fact, we all do this to a degree. 
It may not be something as ridiculous as collecting seashells. But I don't think many Christians are far removed from these small dreams. What your life is here for and what your life is about. Let me put it to you like this. When you think about the role of Christ in your life, which way should it be characterized? That you are the sun and he is the, a planet revolving around you? So that ultimately, your life can be understood in terms of your dreams, your ambitions, and your plans and purposes and hopes and desires and comforts. That you go to Jesus for help here or there. But basically, your root motive in life is to live the things you desire to live for. Or like Paul, can your life be characterized the other way around? He is the blazing sun, the center of your solar system. Your life revolves around him and his purposes. When that is true of you, everything in your life begins to display that that is true. It controls your prayer life. Because your prayers are no longer about Jesus who revolves around you coming to help you in your plans for how you want to live your life. But rather, you are wanting to be caught up and swept up into what Christ is doing in the world. It controls how you use your time. Because your measure of your time and of what makes time worthwhile and what makes it well spent is how you invest into Christ and his kingdom. It's, a measure of, it's measured by how you use your money. Because instead of understanding that your money is gifted to you for your pleasure and your comfort in life, and Jesus gets a little bit, kind of trim off the edges, as long as it doesn't hurt, you suddenly understand that when you look at your bank balance, it is all Christ's, entrusted to you by him as a resource for investment in his kingdom. It controls how your thoughts go. It's measured by your thoughts. What occupies your mind in day-to-day life? What is it that you dream about when nothing is hindering your thoughts from flying away? When a person can say with Paul that to live is Christ, their dreams are consumed with what Jesus is doing in this world. And they want to be part of it. I think that's going to look different for all of us, obviously, because we're not all called as Paul is to be an apostle and plant churches. So fruitful labor, what fruitful labor is, looks different from person to person. It's as varied as there are people. But, don't let that be an excuse to you, brother or sister. Don't you know Jesus' words on this subject? Jesus did not set it up in such a way that there was the great body of Christians who live their lives in normal, ordinary ways, and then there are certain select people who are called to devote their lives to him completely. 
One of the great unique things about the Christian church is that every one of us is called to live our lives as sacrificial disciples. That's why Jesus says that if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and die. This is why in John 15, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Jesus is clear. There's an expectation and a promise. It's not that there are certain branches that are called to bear fruit. The really powerful, really radical Christians. And I'm just a little twig or a leaf somewhere. Jesus speaks to every heart, to every man, to every woman. says, every branch in me. We're all called to be fruit bearers. But his answer to your question, well, how do I bear fruit, is not, friend, you must work harder. Jesus turns and he says, abide in me and I in you. You can hear Paul's words, can't you? To live is Christ. Don't fret yourself about how God wants you to live a fruitful life. Rather, as Paul does, as Jesus counsels here, live a Christ-centered life. Abide in me, he says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Friend, I don't think there's any more fulfilling way to live than what Paul articulates for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think that it's every Christian's call to be able to say those words. Maybe if you're not a Christian, you listen to the things I'm saying today, and it doesn't sound so appealing. One of the mistakes people assume about faith is that it's all about meeting your felt needs. But of course, that is to put things exactly the wrong way around. When Jesus called people to believe in him, he put himself at the center as Lord, not only of your life, but of the universe. And he never hid the fact that there's a cost to following him. You have to be willing to give up everything. And if you can look at yourself and say, in your most honest moment, Maybe you've been thinking you're a Christian, but you know that you've never really laid your life down in that way. I want to ask and encourage and even compel you to do that today. It can be as simple as making a decision, praying a prayer, and asking the Lord to come and take it over. But I also know, and even as I prepared, I felt something of the conviction of God in my own heart and the desire in my own heart to want to respond to Paul's example here. And I suspect that that's echoed in yours. If you're a Christian, you can look at yourself and say in honesty, Lord, I know that my time, my talents, my energies, my mind are captivated by many things. And Lord, not all of them are for you and for your glory. The beauty 
What it means to abide in Christ is that we can come back to him and receive his energy for transformation, his power for change. Would you like that? Why don't we bow our heads and pray together? I think the first thing we must do is just respond in a really personal way to Jesus right now in prayer. I'd love to say a prayer. You can agree with me. But you may also just want to add to that your own heart expression right now. Let's just have a couple of minutes of quiet, shall we? Jesus, we need to begin with a declaration that you're worthy. If there's any doubt about that in any heart here, I pray, Lord, that you reveal it to, to us all, that you're worthy. That the question should not revolve around me and my willingness, but around you and your worthiness. Because when I look at you, I consider you and your glory. Everything is put into perspective, Lord. You sit on a throne gifted to you by the Father. You brought all creation into existence and you sustain it by your powerful will. You called me to be your child, to be in your family. And everything I am, everything I have belongs to you. But Lord, how our spirits fight that, revolt against that, are torn away. Lord, we want to be captured again by the all-consuming vision of who you are and of your glory that brings us to a point not only of repenting of our sin, but repenting of our apathy. Repenting, Lord, of our easygoing, casual approach to what you've called us to do. And bringing ourselves to you, heart, soul, mind, and strength to love you with every fiber of our being. Lord, I pray that even as we take communion, your power would confirm what you're doing in people's hearts. To bring us to a point of change. Not just of desire, not just of a momentary willingness, but of total change. And may we also then experience the joy that Paul had. Yes, I will rejoice. Yes, I will be happy. As my life is lived in total abandon to the Son of God.